Amen. Hey, grab a seat. And as you do, uh, get your Bible to Ruth chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find one under a chair nearby you uh, to this short book in the Old Testament uh, called Ruth. As Pastor Brian was preaching last week, I began about halfway through the sermon to just continuously have this picture of a sunrise in my head. Um, I, love, I love to watch the sunrise. Um, I, I, I told you week one, as we watched Naomi be completely devastated, I told you I've never been devastated. And, you know, I always am scared to say that because um, I know live in a broken world long enough and, and you'll be there. But one of the things, and so I don't know how I'll react when that day comes, but one of the things I've tried to make a resolve of now is when that day comes, I've committed to something that I'm going to stay up all night and I'm going to watch the sunrise the next morning as a testament to the fact that the Lord is faithful for the sun to rise again. And as, I was, as, as Pastor Brian was preaching last week, as we come out of chapter one, uh, where, where chapter one ends is a, a woman who left with her family was displaced by a famine and is in a foreign land, and then her husband dies, and then both of her sons dies, and she's left with no male descendants, no, no, um, no way for the lineage to be carried on. And, and, and it, it, things are so hopeless that by the end of chapter one, she, the, the writer doesn't even call her Naomi. It, it refers to her as the woman. He's trying to communicate that uh, um, in this day and age, she is hopeless and she's nameless. And that's where we ended chapter one. We just ended in the heaviness of that. And we said, sometimes isn't that where life has us? Just in the devastation where you don't know, like you believe God is there and he exists, but you don't know what in the world he's doing and why in the world he has you there. And so um, chapter two, Pastor Brian preaching us through it last week, uh, uh, Naomi and Ruth come back from Moab, they come back to Bethlehem, they come back to the house of bread, they get there, they begin to settle, Ruth's like, we got to have food to eat, she goes out to glean, and, and, and the writer is intentionally kind of bringing out this irony here, that she just so happened into a field of a relative, a guy by the name of Boaz, and Boaz comes up and he's like, who's that? And they tell him, that's Ruth. And she came back with Naomi, and he's like, I've heard about her. I've heard about her faithfulness. Her story has gone before her. And Boaz begins to kind of take on, as we see here, this, this role of protection for Ruth and this role of provision to Ruth and Naomi. And, and, and it was like the sun begins to rise in the midst of the darkness. Uh, you, can, you can kind of start to see uh, the sky light up, and it's the sunrise of what the series is called, the sunrise of the chesed of God. What is God's chesed? It's His covenant-keeping, faithful, loving kindness. It's God's covenant-keeping, faithful, loving kindness. Kindness. I know that's a mouthful, but there's really no good way to translate with one word in English all that this Hebrew concept of chesed means. And, and, and you saw like the glimpses of it. Anyone else love to watch the sunrise? As you start to, I went out this morning to the side of the school to intentionally watch it. And you start to see it just begin to color up. Uh, here's a gift God gave us Christmas morning out uh, the kitchen window at our house. So that was Christmas morning of this year. And I'm like, yeah! <laughs> it was just this gift from the Lord 
of going like all of a sudden color starts to light up the darkness and then the sun peeks over the horizon and there's just kind of like lasers that cut through the dark sky. Like I began to see it last week in chapter two. The sunrise of the chesed of God. God's faithfulness rising in the situation. Well, today the, 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 the sun of the chesed of God is going to rise more in chapter three. And like if you came week one and you came and, and it just so happened that you were in a season where you needed to see hope and you needed to see in the midst of the mess that God is faithful, he's loving, and he's kind, and he keeps his promises. I hope last week you got a glimpse of it. And I hope today you get to bask in the hope of the chesed of God a little more. I hope what we'll see in Ruth's story you'll begin to see in your story. But even more than that, the, the book of Ruth isn't just, it is, it's this beautiful story of Ruth and Boaz and how this all works, but Ruth is included in the genealogy to Jesus for a reason. The book of Ruth has significant um, impact in all of redemptive history. And so like when, when we study Ruth, there's also this upper story, as Pastor Brian called it, of how does this point us to Christ, both in the lineage, but then today we're going to see some beautiful shadow and imagery that ultimately points to a greater Redeemer who is to come, and that is the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And so uh, all of Ruth 3, you need to know this, all of Ruth chapter 3 happens in like less than a 24-hour period. I love that. You're going to see a significant shift from hopelessness to hope. And after years and years and years of two weary widows just trying to figure it out in less than 24 hours, God is going to shift this thing significantly. And that's what our God can do. Within a 24-hour period, He can shift what looks utterly hopeless to complete hope. And so I want us to bask in the chesed of God at work here. And so, Father, would you speak now? Would your word go forth in power? Would you encourage the faint-hearted? Would you bring hope to the hopeless? God, would you cut through the heart of the skeptic here? Would you encourage those who need encouragement? Would you humble those who need humble? Please, Jesus. Amen. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? I love the first verse of this chapter. And here's why. Throughout this book, this is the first time it seems that Naomi's eyes have gone to another. You remember how chapter one ended, and rightfully so. I mean, if I was Naomi as chapter one ended, it I would be even worse and just kind of like, look what's happened to me. But as chapter one ends, Naomi says, I, I went out full 
The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord's hand is against me. And there's this focus on all that has happened in Naomi's life, rightfully so. But now you see as chapter 3 begins and after chapter 2 in which you can start to see God at work in the midst of this, it seems Naomi's eyes have gone up to see that there's a God superintending over these things. And as her eyes went up, her eyes now go out to her daughter-in-law. She starts to look and say, oh, I need to find rest for you. Then it may go well with you. And I'm telling you, as the Lord begins to lift you out of the pit of despair, it is a good sign when your eyes begin to go out on others. I got to find rest for you. Then it may be well with you. So now, here's Naomi's plan. Is not Boaz a relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at, where's he going to be? Where's he going to be? At the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. I think uh, 2020, um, tip, you know, uh, for the most part, American congregation, we're like, what in the world is going on here, right? Uh, a couple of things we need to understand. It's time for threshing. Harvest has been collected uh, the, the men would take the harvest, they would head out to the town's threshing floor. It typically would be kind of just outside a town, Could maybe think of like a, an outcropping of a hill, stone pavers, typically in a circle, and this is where you would thresh out the grain or you would winnow the grain. Um, it tells us that uh, uh, um, uh, Boaz is going to be winnowing the barley, and so um, they would take the barley, you'd throw it up in the air, the chaff would blow away, the lighter chaff would blow away in the breeze, the grain itself would come back down, hit those stone pavers, and you will have winnowed out the barley. And this is where, after the harvest had been collected, uh, you would, the men would take and winnow out the grain. And so the threshing floor was a place of work, yes. But the threshing floor was also kind of the culture of it was a place of play. Men, after another year of hard work on the harvest, uh, would be there. They would be feasting. They would be drinking. Um, the culture of the threshing floor would be a place that um, could be targeted by prostitutes knowing that you had a group of men here feasting and celebrating. And so the culture of the threshing floor um, was one of a bit of promiscuity, uh, kind of a, a, a party scene. And Ruth is about to walk into this culture of what goes on at the threshing floor. Now, because of that, you just got to know, if you... Uh, went to Barnes & Noble or you went to a bookstore, you picked up a book on the book of Ruth. Some people who study the book of Ruth, some commentators, they take this scene here and they hypersexualize it. They, they say, oh, what it means when Ruth did this is it actually means this. And I mean, crazy, crazy interpretations of this. Here's what I'll tell you. 
uh, the interpretations of what exactly went on here as Ruth heads down to the threshing floor are all the way from crazy to like what I think are very close. Here's the deal. I think if God wanted to indicate anything hypersexualized here to us, he would have done it. I think when it says that Ruth went down to the threshing floor and uncovered Boaz's feet, you know what I think that means? I think that means Ruth went down to the threshing floor and uncovered Boaz's feet. Who's with me? And so, yes, we need to understand there's some innuendo here of Ruth going to the threshing floor and and the Hebrew reader like, oh, this isn't going to end well. And yet what we're going to find is amazing chesed and honoring by Boaz and amazing chesed and honoring by Ruth. That's all that I think is going on. But I, I had to address it. Because if you picked up a book and you started reading on Ruth 3, depending on where that, that, that uh, commentator is, you'd be like, oh my goodness, I had no idea. Don't worry, you didn't have to have an idea. I don't think it's there. So she goes down. She says she'll do the plan. How's it turn out? Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Why? I think he's just protecting his harvest. He's going to spend the night there to protect it from thieves. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? Now, now, can you see this scene? Apparently, he doesn't wake up when she uncovers his feet. Uh, midnight probably gets cold. He's, it says he's startled. He rolls over. He looks, and I don't think this was just a, oh, who are you? I think this is a, who are you? Picture him. He's laying next to his harvest. He wakes up in the middle of the night. There's a woman laying at his feet. Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Now, before I read this next sentence, everything about us understanding the book of Ruth hinges on understanding this one sentence she says to Boaz on the threshing floor at midnight. It all hinges on this. What she says in the next sentence is packed with significant meaning. Who are you? Ruth, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Let's take that in its two parts. Spread your wings over your servant. Boaz knew what she was asking, Ruth knew what she was asking, and oh, by the way, it's way more than, I'm a little chilly, can, I, can you share the covers? This, folks, is a proposal. Boaz just got proposed to, next to a heap of grain at midnight. Why do we know this? Ezekiel references this phrase as a clear meaning of marriage. 
I want you to notice something. You don't have to turn back to chapter 2, but in chapter 2, it's so ironic, intentionally ironic. Here's what Boaz said to Ruth one chapter earlier. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz says, Ruth, good job. You've come back and you've taken refuge under the wings of God. And now Ruth is saying to Boaz this night, yes, I'm taking refuge under the wings of God, but you are the means in which God will provide that refuge. You are to marry me. So guys, listen. You go to bed that night the biggest thing on your mind is you're going to throw some barley in the air tomorrow morning. You make up out of a dead sleep at midnight. There's a woman laying at your feet. He says, marry me. <laughs> now, why? This sounds so random in our day and age, in our culture. Why, why would Ruth go down and do this? What are, like, what are them? It's just, just some random, like, I'm... I'm how is this rooted in some sort of cultural or even Israel law understanding? We get to there with the last part of the phrase. Spread your wings over your servant. And she tells him why. Like why? For you are a, a redeemer. Love that word. We should name our church that one day. <laughs> For you are a redeemer. Now, what is up with this? God in his goodness to his people, God in his gracious provision, created laws um, to, an, uh, to make for what's called a kinsman redeemer. So when you read the Old Testament, you'll find these laws outlining um, a Hebrew, like Goel, Goel, the kinsman redeemer. Um, Daniel Blocks, a guy who's devoted a lot of his life to studying the book of Ruth, he says this about the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer denotes the near relative who's responsible for the economic well-being of a relative. And he comes into play, especially when the relative is in distress and cannot get himself or herself out of the crisis. And so God is making provision for his people. And he just outlines it in his law that, hey, if you fall into this type of situation, don't worry. There's someone in your family, the next relative, who's going to come and they're going to redeem you. What was the role of the kinsman redeemer? What were they responsible to do? And as we look at these roles, remember, the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament, it's a shadow figure pointing us to the ultimate redeemer, Jesus. So what did the kinsman redeemer do? Uh, they were to keep the property of the person in the clan. Uh, they were to help make sure that the property didn't leave the clan, to preserve the good of the clan. Um, look at this one. I love this one. To buy back the relative if they had sold themselves into slavery. So a relative hits such a desperate place of poverty, they sell themselves into slavery just to make it. Here comes the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer pays the redemption price. The, the, the relative walks out who was once a slave the day before. They walk out free. See Jesus in that one. Anyone? Oh, yeah? Okay, good. We should. 
uh, to track down and ensure justice on a murder of a near relative. That's an intense one, okay? To receive restitution money on behalf of a deceased victim of a crime. To make sure justice is served in that regard. To ensure justice is served in a lawsuit of a near relative. These were the responsibilities of a kinsman redeemer. Ruth says, spread your wings over me, marry me, you are a redeemer. In all five of these I just listed, though, we don't really see anywhere where like, it specifically said that a redeemer was to marry the wife of a deceased relative. Why is Ruth coming so confidently about this? I believe she's coming so confidently, appealing to what Boaz would have known, what we see in Deuteronomy 25 called leveret marriage. What is leveret marriage? A leverite marriage. Deuteronomy 25. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of a city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. That's in your Bible. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house, and the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. So, I believe when Ruth says, Marry me, you're a redeemer. There's an appeal here to leverite marriage. Well, what do you mean? Boaz wasn't her husband's brother. I know. Her husband died. What happened to his brother? He died. Ruth is coming now to the closest, the nearest relative that she knows, and she's saying, will you fulfill what God has laid out here of leverite marriage? And I want to know what Boaz is about to say. Like, if you know the story, you're like, oh, I know what Boaz is going to say. It's beautiful. But no, like, before you, just picture this. You're laying next to grain, sleeping. You woke up out of a dead sleep at midnight, and the woman's at your feet. Marry me, you're a redeemer. Do I get a night to sleep on it? <laughs> His response is beautiful. And he said, verse 10, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. See the hope of the Hesed of God rise. He said, hey, I'll do it. I'll fulfill the role of Redeemer. Yes, I will do it. And they all lived happily ever after, right? Why there's still so much of the book left if he said he would do it? One minor complication. Verse 12. 
And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Boaz, the Hesed of Boaz. To Ruth and also to this relative who is nearer. He actually has redeeming rights before Boaz. And Boaz could have just said, here, okay, like here's the deal. Forget him. We're cutting him out of this. You know, no, no, no. There's a relative closer. And you're like, no! This isn't how it's supposed to go. Some Joe Schmo who's been off camera the whole time is just going to sweep in, take Ruth. But I think you're seeing the character of Boaz here. Faithfulness to the way that God had laid this all out. And we don't yet know how it's resolved as chapter 3 comes to a close. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it be known that the woman came to the, uh, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. What they're trying to do, guard against any of the perceptions of what norm, what normal custom would have been of a woman at the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how'd you fare, my daughter? Then she, told, then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me for he said to me, don't miss what he says, what he says is big. Ruth, the book of Ruth is full of beautiful imagery all the way through it. Don't miss what he says. Are you going to miss what he says? No, okay, thanks. You must not go back. What's the phrase? Empty-handed. The author is doing something here. What did Naomi say as they went back to Bethlehem? I went out full. I've come back. Literally, Boaz is pouring six measures of barley into Ruth's cloak, and he's saying, don't go back empty-handed. God's trying to tell us Ruth and Naomi are no longer empty. Do not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And Ruth waits. And we wait till next week. Don't close up. Don't pack up. What do we do with this? What is a scene from thousands of years ago of a man laying next to his grain heap and a woman coming and customarily uncovering his feet, speaking, spread your wings over me. What in the world? How does that help us get up and go to work this week? And what way does that help us go home in a few minutes and come to any sort of bearing on our life? Here's where I think it does. The Redeemer Boaz is a shadow figure of the greater Redeemer to come, Jesus Christ. Ruth has come, and she has laid herself at the feet of her Redeemer. The simple posture of that is one in which Redeemer we are completely at your mercy. If you do not redeem, we are not redeemed. If you do not redeem, 
we stay in our hopelessness. But if you redeem, there's hope. And if you redeem, there's healing. And if you redeem, there's strength. No, and so Redeemer, we come and we lay ourselves at your feet, pleading for your mercy that you would redeem. I think in the same way that Ruth went and laid herself at the feet of her Redeemer is the posture in which the Christian is to live with our Redeemer. And I believe that the chesed of God, chesed and hope, are found most fully at the feet of the Redeemer. And so I tell us, cast yourself at the feet, at the feet of the Redeemer today. Try to imagine you going before someone's feet, you throwing your face at their feet. What does that communicate? I think it communicates a desperate surrender I think in relation to Jesus, it communicates a desperate surrender that is full of worship. You know the story in the Gospels of the woman who's like wiping his feet with her hair? Is there any more beautiful picture? And so if you're here today and you need to cast yourself at the feet of Jesus for salvation... Would you surrender at the feet of Jesus today? And you might not even know that you do. You're like, what do you mean? Like salvation from what? Um, Just like the kinsman redeemer, who one of his roles was to go back and to buy a relative out of slavery, you need to be bought out of a slavery. Before you have a relationship with Jesus, you and all of us in this room, you're slave to sin. And so you're in prison, you're in in this prison of sin, and the end game of that prison sentence to sin is death. You You have a death sentence. You say, don't we all? Yeah, but Scripture says to die apart from relationship with Jesus and to die in our sin is to be separated from Him for eternity. And yet we come to the book of Ruth and there's this picture of a redeemer and then you continue to study the Bible and a greater redeemer comes. I've been telling you about him. His name is Jesus. And he came and he uh, went to a cross. You probably know that part of the story, but why he went to the cross is because he's paying your death sentence for you. And he's paying my death sentence for me. And the Bible tells us, whoever will believe in the name of Jesus shall be saved. And so by you believing today in this church service, you are casting yourself at the feet of Jesus, throwing yourself on his mercies and saying, I need you to save me from my sin. Some of us in the room today need to cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus to be saved. I'll trust the Holy Spirit to apply that to hearts as he sees fit. Some of us need to cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus, the Redeemer, today not for salvation, but because we're in desperation. This is a series for the desperate. Um, Pastor Brian showed a slide last week, and I love, I love it. He says, if, if you're in devastation, or if you're desperate, and you're devastated because of it's a consequence, meaning you've sinned and you've brought kind of this devastation and desperate season upon yourself, 
how you cast yourself at the feet of Jesus today is to return and to repent. Come back to him. Come back to him. Come back to him. There's this beautiful story in the New Testament of the prodigal son. It's how our God interacts with people who come back to him. What you'll find is the overwhelming mercy and grace of God in your coming back. But will you come back and will you cast yourself at the feet of Jesus? Will you turn from your sin in the midst of your desperation? Other of us need to cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus if we're desperate and uh, just because of circumstances. You didn't sin to cause it. It's just inevitable in a broken world that this thing has happened and it's devastated you and you're desperate. You're in desperation. What do you do then? You return and you remember. You remember what God has done. You remember what he's able to do. You remember that he's strong and he's mighty and he's powerful and he's loving and you need to come and you need to cast yourself at the feet of Jesus and you need to remember what he is able to do. And some of us in the room are desperate because of conflict relational conflict in our life, you need to return and repair. You come this morning and you throw yourself at the feet of Jesus and he gently comes out and he says, okay, now get up and now here's what we got to do. We got to pick up the phone. We got to have that conversation. We got to go have that conversation with that person. We got to go mend it. We return and repair. Some of us surrender at the feet of Jesus this morning for salvation. Others of us in desperation. And then the third category for all of us All of us need to live lives surrendered at the foot of the Redeemer for just the daily normal life. You with me? If you're like, okay, I'm saved, don't need salvation, desperate, I'll probably be there again, but I'm not there today. We need surrendered moment by moment at the foot of the Redeemer just for the daily activity. For the daily grind. When Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, do you believe that? I've been talking to him about that this week. I'm like, Lord, I think I'm a practical, I'm a functioning atheist on that. I believe it, but like I live like I don't really believe it. That apart from you, I can do nothing. But the reality is, if our life isn't lived at the feet of the Redeemer, I don't have the strength and wherewithal to not get annoyed and short with four little kids between now and 8 o'clock bedtime tonight. We don't have the strength to get up and be the employee God's called us to be tomorrow. We can't be the mom, the dad, the son, the daughter, the husband, the wife. Like We can't do anything apart from him. The Christian life is not a bunch of strong people walking around. It's a bunch of weak people living their life in a posture at the feet of Redeemer Jesus. You with me? And so, we cast ourselves at his feet, saying, Jesus, rain your mercy down. We need you. We need you. We need you. So I just want us to sing this song as our closing prayer. You can stand to your feet we sing it. Um, If you grew up singing hymns, you'll know this song. And if you know it, I plead with you to lock in on every phrase, to not just sing it, like not just say the words, but to really lock in on every phrase to go, what am I singing right now? 
okay, as I sing this about surrendering this aspect of my life, do I mean it? Jesus, do I mean it? Uh, There's a line that all week, I've just listened to this on repeat in preparation for today. Make me Jesus, make me Savior, holy thine. I'm like, do I mean that, Jesus? That I really want to surrender everything to you, that I would be wholly yours, not keeping a little corner of my heart for myself. And so as we sing this, let's make it our prayer of a people who want to live at the posture, at the feet 